So we are in a series titled Ignite Your Faith. We're right in the middle of it, actually one week to go. So we're right near the, uh, right after the middle. And we've been looking at five steps that you can take to grow in your faith. So five steps, five things that you can do right now to make 2023 a year of spiritual growth. And so far we've seen uh, in week one, we saw about the importance of having Jesus in your life, of putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That it's, you're not going to grow, or at least you're not going to grow in the right areas if you don't put your faith in Jesus and make him the foundation of your life. Uh, two weeks ago, we saw the importance of getting in Scripture, that that is sort of the foundation of your spiritual growth, that, that if you, you can do a lot of things, but if you don't know Scripture, then you will be missing out on a lot of these, a lot of these important points. Third, last week we saw about the importance of getting plugged in the church, and not only that, but being at church all the time, as much as possible, and being involved with people at church, and as you do that, that will help you grow. And today, we're going to be talking about the fourth step. The fourth thing that I'm going to encourage you all to do to make 2023 a year of spiritual growth, and that is to get sin out of your life, to get sin out of your life. And so to begin, I want to share a story that I came across last year, and the story goes back to 2020, so not too long ago, and it was about a 13-year-old girl who was posting videos of herself dancing and lip-syncing on TikTok. And this girl started becoming very popular. She soon gained over 1 million followers, and one of those followers was a guy named Justin. And Justin took a liking. He was an 18-year-old. Justin took a liking to this girl who was on TikTok. So he began sending her messages. And he began asking for information and contacting her through Snapchat and Instagram and all these other things that I don't know much about here. And at first, the girl didn't think much of it because there was lots of people that contacted her. So she would respond with just general greetings and, and uh, did what she did with many fans of hers. But Justin looked for other ways to reach out to her. And so he contacted some of her classmates, both current and former classmates. And somehow managed to get some more pictures of her that were available. And so he eventually got her phone number. And things, the things just sort of went downhill from there. Uh, by the way, this is why I don't do dancing videos on TikTok. Exactly for this reason. I don't want stalkers here. I'm just kidding. I, I, I don't have TikTok. In case you're, you're like, Pastor likes TikTok. No. Uh, so he started requesting her to send odd, I'll just put it, odd and inappropriate pictures. We'll keep it PG of herself. The girl proceeded to block him on all her social media accounts, but Justin just didn't want to give up. And so he sent her money and asked that she would unblock him. And so finally the girl's dad stepped in and told him to stop contacting her and then Justin realized that he had no choice, that he needed to see her. Dad told her to go away. Nope, he really wanted to see her. And so he told one of her former classmates that he was going to drive to her house with a shotgun and shoot down the front door to enter the house. However, he lived hundreds of miles away, so no one really thought that 
he was serious, but unfortunately, he was. And so, on July 10th, 2020, Justin showed up at her house. And that was in Naples, Florida. And he showed up with a shotgun. And so he shot one shell through their door, and then it went bad. What he didn't know was that the girl's father was a retired police lieutenant. And when the dad shot, heard the shot, he jumped out of bed. At that point, he didn't have his gun. He ran downstairs and spotted Justin in the yard, where at that point his uh, shotgun had jammed. And so uh, he started chasing Justin. He, fought, he got away. So the guy, the dad, went back to the door and just sort of stood there. He got his gun and waited as police would, were coming. They were on their way. Now, you would think that would be the end of it, right? But apparently, Justin was not very smart. And so he returned to the front of the house. And the dad pointed his gun at Justin, and he told him to put the shotgun down. So guess what Justin did? He lifted the shotgun up, and so the dad fired at him and killed him. And so when the police investigated all of this, they found that Justin had two cell phones that contained thousands of pictures of this girl. Thousands of pictures of this girl. Now, using this story, I realize that this is a serious event, and I'm not making light of it. But when I read this story last year, I thought to myself, man, that is a picture of what sin does. That is a picture of what sin does and how it is so similar to stalking. And so I'm going to get to the main passage in just a moment. But before I get to the main passage, I want to tell you why sin and stalking are very similar. So first of all, stalkers, well, what do they do? They stalk. Stalkers stalk. 1 Peter 5.8 says about the most evil stalker, Satan, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so listen this morning, make no mistake. The devil is looking for someone and he is looking to devour that person. And we can easily, as just humans, we can easily stalk after sin, but sin through the devil is stalking after us as well. Here's the second reason why sin and stalking are very similar is that stalkers ultimately seek destruction. A, uh, a stalker always has selfish, selfish or destructive intent. And so as First Peter says, the devil is looking to do the same thing. So he's not following us around trying to give us candy. Hold on, you forgot this. No, he is here to destroy us. He is here to devour us. Third reason why they are similar is that the only way to get rid of stalkers is to kill them in some way, in some way. And so I'm not saying that we need to shoot a stalker every time, but I am saying that the only way to stop a stalker is to kill the opportunity that they have. And so with human stalkers, that may be getting the police involved or getting a court order, or, or it might be a nine millimeter, or as I learned last night, a very popular home defense weapon, weapon up here, the uh, AK-15 I learned about. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands here, but not sneaking into anybody's house here at church. Now you may think, Kyle, 
that sounds a little extreme. That, that you, have to, you have to kill the opportunity. You have to kill this. Aren't you just getting a little excited about this? Well, that takes us to our main passage. And so I want to start out by reading two verses before. And our main passage is Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30. We're going to go back two verses, though. And we're going to look at uh, really the, the context of this. And so let me start in verse 27 here. You have heard that it was said, and this is Jesus talking, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we're going to pause there for just a moment. In Matthew 5 here, in 6 and 7, Jesus is giving the sermon on the mount. And this sermon really goes over a number of different topics. It talks about, Jesus talks about the Beatitudes, where he says, blessed are the, and goes on about that. He also talks about evangelism, the the importance of evangelism. He talks about how Jesus and the law interact. He talks about sin. He gives the Lord's Prayer as an example. He talks about anxiety and many other things in the sermon. So this is a broad sermon talking about a lot of different things. And in the section that we're looking at in verse 27, Jesus is discussing several several types of sin. And so he talks about in the sin here in in chapter 5, he talks about anger and he talks about lust and he talks about divorce and he talks about giving oaths and he also talks about retaliation. And because of this, I want you to to understand here as we go into now verse 27 that he's talking about lust, but really he's talking about all fleshly desires, like giving in the fleshly desires here. So the context here, Jesus is saying don't lust, but really what he's getting at is that we need to control ourselves, control all our desires that we have. And so this leads us to our main passage in the next two verses, starting in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it out. For it is better that you that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So again, Jesus here is not simply or exclusively talking about lust. He is saying that if you he, he isn't saying if you lust with your eyes, he's saying if you sin with your eyes. So in this context, Lust here is referring to lots of different sins. And what does he say to do with it? He says, tear it out. He says, cut it off. So the first question that we need to ask in this passage here is, is Jesus literally saying to cut off body parts? Is he literally saying to do that? Because uh, uh, if so, then for the altar call, what would I have to do? I have to get a knife. And I'd have to have people come down and say, all right, what's your sin? All right, chop, next, and so on. But you're noticing here, we don't have any of that here. So what is Jesus talking about? Jesus is using what we call 
hyperbole. Hyperbole. And that's defined as an exaggerated statement or claims not meant to be taken literally. So for example, when your teenager complains to you that everyone else is going to the party, so why can't I? Is she or he saying everyone in the world or everyone in the school, every single person is going to that party? And the answer is no. It's just a lot of people are, but I don't get to. Now, in the Bible, hyperbole is used a lot as well. And one example of hyperbole in the Bible is in John chapter 4. Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman, and Jesus tells her these things that she didn't reveal to him. He says, yeah, you, you have multiple, you had, you've had multiple husbands, and the one you're living with is not even one you're married to. And she's amazed at him knowing this. And she, she calls him a prophet. And she goes back after they talk a while. She goes back to the town. And she says to the people in verse 39, he told me all that I ever did. He told me all that I ever did. So is she saying that in their brief conversation, he sat down with her and starting at birth, they described everything that she did in her life. Because that's what she's saying there. No, she's using hyperbole. Hyperbole. Where she's using this big to sort of make a, per, make a point here. That, yeah, he knew things that he shouldn't have. And yet he did. And so Jesus, in our passage, is not literally saying gouge out the eye, cut off the hand, or any of that. It's hyperbole to show the seriousness of the situation. And so to phrase it without hyperbole, he might say something like this. Get whatever is leading you to sin out of your life. Get whatever is in you that's leading you to sin, whatever is out there that's leading you to sin, get it out of your life. Cut it off. Because it is better, Jesus says, for you to miss out on something than for your entire body to end up in an eternity in hell. And so we need to take sin seriously and get it out of our life. That's what Jesus is getting at. We need to take it seriously and get it out of our life. And so with that in mind, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning focusing on, on how we can do that. How do we get the sin out of our life? And I'm going to uh, give you four steps to consider taking as maybe this morning you're struggling in some way. Maybe it's an addiction that nobody knows about that, that, is, that only takes place at nighttime when everybody's in bed. Maybe it's some sort of substance that people know about or don't, but you just can't seem to stop or maybe it's something maybe less serious, but still it's leading your life astray spiritually. So whatever it is, what can you do if you can't cut them off here, literally? What can you do to get that sin out of your life? And the first thing is that we need to turn to God for help. Turn to God for help. In the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the first three steps are this. I'm going to read them to you. We admitted that we were powerless over alcohol 
and that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Number three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. So in this, he's saying you need to admit you have a problem. You need to recognize you can't fix yourself, so you got to turn to God. And in and, and Alcoholics Anonymous, they're more generic here. And then you need to turn to God to let them help you fix the problem. And so looking at it more specifically, that's what the Bible says as well, that, that pertaining to God, that when you are struggling with something, you can't do it on your own. That apart from him, you can do nothing. And so we need to turn to God for help if we're going to have victory over our sin. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul says, For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we don't fight sin when we fight it. We don't fight it with the flesh. We start at the spiritual. Therefore, we shouldn't just say, all right, I'm sinning, so let me just do this human thing first and try to fix it. In some circles, they call it, they call that white knuckling it, where you are just going to hold on to yourself and just do the best you can. That's the fleshly way of doing it. And listen, there is a place for that, but it starts. The foundation of victory over sin is turning to God and letting him help you. Humbling yourself to God and he will lift you up. 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul says, but with the temptation, God will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so do you want to get sin out of your life? The first step is to turn to God. Turn to God. Second step, how do you get sin out of your life? And that is that you need to throw the sin out by starving it. You need to throw the sin out. Now, we already saw in Matthew that we need to get the sin out of our life. And it is entirely feasible for some, and, and, and we hear stories about it. I've heard stories where someone maybe is struggling with, we'll say, alcoholism. And then they come and they put their faith in Jesus Christ down at the altar. And then, poof, that, that addiction is gone. They never drink again, don't even think about it, and they are totally healed. And that is possible. And God can do that, but many times God doesn't do that in our life. Why is that, you ask? Well, Paul had the same issue, where he was struggling in some way, where there's something going on in his life. And he said, God, take this away from me. And God said to him, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So, all, all this to say, uh, there's going to be times where God may just poof and, and you're better. But many, many people, and for many times, that's not going to be the place. or That's not going to be the case there. And God is going to let you work through it with him by humbling yourself and letting him work through you. And so when that happens, if you can't just cut it off, then what do you do? And I want, encur- I want to encourage you to consider starving it. Starving it. 
I'm going to go into the first of, uh, I think I have three or four uh, illustrations, all pertaining to World War II in the Pacific. So you can imagine what book I was reading uh, when I wrote this. During World War II, the Japanese took hundreds of small islands as they sought to really expand their empire. And so as they did this, they were seeking resources because their resources in the the little island of Japan was not enough to to take care of everything that they wanted to do. And so they took over islands and took their resources back to Japan. And so when the United States got involved in the war after Pearl Harbor, they didn't just go directly for the island of Japan. In fact, except for one time, it was a whole two years before they actually made it over Japan dropping bombs. What they did was they started on the outskirts of their empire, little islands, and they took the island. And then when they took the island, they would use that as a sort of a a jumping point to the next island. And then they'd go from there and there. And some islands they didn't need and yet they didn't feel they needed to fight for. And so what they do is they just jump right past it and basically starving out that island because that island could no longer be reinforced. So they were just sort of stuck there. And so as they did this, they got closer and closer and closer to Japan as they were taking out all these islands, starving Japan of their resources. This got so bad that by the end of the war, Japan was so low on oil that they had this massive carrier and they couldn't even send it out other than just a little bit at the very, very end of the war. And that was because they didn't have enough oil. They didn't have enough oil. And so I want you to think about this in the area of sin. I'm going to encourage you to cut out the resources that supply the sin in your life. For example, if you have an addiction to uh, alcohol, you could decide just to stop. And if God does that in you, works that in you, then awesome. But if he doesn't, then instead, you could take the indirect approach of starving that in your life. Starving it and trying to get it out of your life that way. So how, how might we starve a sin? First of all, we would make it harder to access. So we would make it harder to access. So we would say, using the alcohol again, if we have some in our house, we would go in and we would throw it out, get it out of our house. Maybe there's a, a way that we drive to work that goes right by the, uh, the place that we buy uh, our alcohol, and you'd say, all right, I'm going to go a different route. That maybe, a, maybe it's a minute or two longer. I'm going to go a different route so that you, you're not in that, that tough temptation. You're going away from it. So find ways to make it harder to access in your life. People who are struggling with pornography, you can use different filters in your house to make it harder to access. You can do these different things to try to make it say so that when you are wanting it, you don't have it there right in front of you readily available. Second, how do you starve it in your life? We would uh, confess it. Confess it. So when we bring bring it to the light, as some people say, by doing that, 
it opens the door for not only for a friend to help us, but for that shame to go away. Because when you bring it to the light, and when you bring it to God, that most likely uh, that friend is going to say, yeah, I struggled with that too at some point, and this is what I did. Or maybe they didn't. They say, oh, I heard about this person who struggled. You should go talk to them. And you're starting to be connected with different resources where people can, where you bring it to light and people will help you and encourage you. And again, as you're struggling, as you bring it out there, that lifts the shame off your shoulders. And then the people who know about this or the person that knows about it can also hold you accountable and ask you from time to time, how are you doing with this? How are you doing? Are you struggling? Do you need help? Do you need prayer? And, and so on. So when you confess, it is brought to life and you are brought to light and you are able to get help with it. Third, how do you starve it? You would make choices to avoid that temptation. So you'd make choices. So I was thinking uh, when I wrote this that sometimes there's uh, going to be friends that are going to be a good influence to you, but other times there's friends that are going to be a bad influence on you. And maybe for a period of time, the ones that are influencing you in the wrong direction, you need to avoid them. Maybe as you're trying to walk away from this sin, you know that they're going to tempt you. That You know they're going to have it at their house and say, hey, you want one? Or you know that when you go out to eat with them, that there's going to be these things that happen that you don't want to get involved in. So what do you do? Before you get in the situation and then pray, Lord, help me in this situation, you get away from the situations. So you're not even tempted in that. So make Choices to avoid the temptation. Fourth, make the necessary changes. So as you give thought to things about what is impacting you, so you think through it and think through the areas where you're most tempted, and then you will make the necessary changes. So this involves thought and processing it and thinking through what's going on in my life, what's leading me to do it. And then you make those changes in your life. And last, you would also uh, consider pursuing counseling. Reach out to someone, a a godly person who who, uh, specializes in helping in these areas and reach out to them for help. And they can lead you and and help you work through that issue from a, a biblical perspective. Now, this is not an exhaustive list here, but this hopefully gives you some ideas of what you can do to uh, to starve the sin out of your life. And so let's go back now to the main steps that we've been talking about. How do you cut it out? How do you cut it out? And so the third one is to set up barriers to keep the sin from coming out, coming back. So just because the sin is gone doesn't mean that you're in the clear. There is still a high chance there that that sin is going to come back and try to tempt you in some way. And so even if you're showing progress, even if you're showing progress, then I encourage you to take steps to prevent the sin from coming back. For example, you could make it harder to access, as we've talked about. You could find accountability, as we've also talked about. And then one thing that I want to go on, go into a little bit more in depth, is that you can establish safe zones in your life. Safe zones. What is a safe zone? It's an area that you're in 
where you're far less likely to be tempted or far less likely to give in to the temptation. And so if you are in these situations, in these safe zones more and more, that helps you be able to grow and recover and and grow and focus on your relationship with God instead of pursuing these sins. So it's not 100%, but this is a strategy that you can use to try to get further and further away from the temptation. Told you about using some World War II stories here. Here's another one. During the latter parts of World World War II, when the Americans were uh, attacking the Japanese islands, they would follow the normal pattern. They sort of just got into a routine. And it would start out with naval bombing, uh, naval and air bombing. So you just blow them up a lot. And then you would storm the beach. And then you would storm the beach and not stop on the beach. You storm and you push forward quickly. Why would they do that? Because as they pushed forward, what they would do then is they would use that beach area that was now no longer dangerous to bring supplies to, to set up hospitals on, and to do all these things so that then when the people on the front needed, uh, needed help, when they needed uh, a doctor, or when they just needed rest, when they would rotate soldiers in, they would bring some to the front and then bring the ones from the front back to the beach to rest. And so this is a great picture of how we can fight sin as well. When you face spiritual battles, then you must make safe zones in your life in order to grow from them. If you're just constantly fighting it all the time, what happens when you're tired? And what happens when you're, when you, when you're feeling like it's never going to end? The more hopeless you are, the more likely you're going to go back into the sin. And so as you establish these safe zones in your life, and as you go into those to hopefully help you rest and recover and grow, that will help you grow spiritually. So first of all, I want to encourage you to make your home a safe zone. Make your home a safe zone. And so again, as I talked about, if there are struggles in your life where where they are easily accessible in your home, then you need to take extreme measures to get them out of your house. That's what Jesus is talking about when he's saying, cut them out. Occasionally, I'll talk to someone who's struggling with lust in some way. And one of the first things that we get at when we get through some of the, get the, the strategies is, what does your home look like? Do you have filters established? Do you have your your smartphone set up in a way where you can't just go and access things? Or uh, some people, if they are really serious, what they do is they call their cable provider and they cancel their cable. And we are like, oh, cancel cable. What do I do? And that is what Jesus is saying. Cut it off. Cut it off. Does not having the cable heal you right in that way? No. But it provides a safe area for you then to grow in your relationship with God. I've seen other people with uh, lust here. They have their really smartphones and they'll take their smartphones and sell them and go back to the 1990s with their dumb phone. And dumb phones are pretty dumb, aren't they? 
But that's the beauty of them because it cuts out the temptation. Another safe area, another safe zone that uh, is a good one, and that is church. Make your church your safe zone. And you may ask, uh, how do I make my church the safe zone? And the beauty of this is, is that most likely church is already a safe zone. So all that you have to do is be there. And when you come to church, not only are you then not engaging in sinful behavior, being tempted many times, but you are doing the opposite as you're worshiping God and pursuing him, as you're growing in fellowship, studying his word, as you're serving in some capacity, all these different ways, the more that you're here, the less likely you will be to be tempted. And so church, listen, you hear me week after week talk about the importance of church, but I'm not just doing this because I like seeing the pews fill. I'm doing it because church can change your life if you go in there and let it minister to you and seek to minister to those around you. God's word is powerful. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. And what do we do? The best I can, preach God's word. And so get in the church. Not just once a holiday. Not just once a month. But every week, be here or be at your church and be engaged in studying and worshiping God. Because as you do that, you are sort of reprogramming your mind to worship him and to stay away from sin. So that is an awesome safe zone. So how else? Can we cut sin out of our life? Here's the last thing I'm going to talk about this morning, and that is to seek to love God more than sin. Seek to love God more than sin. Sure, many of you have heard the phrase, the best offense, or sorry, the best defense is what? A good offense. Yeah. So it's not always just sort of standing back. When's it going to get me? When's it going to get me? No, instead, as you're seeking to get these things out of your life, that's really only the first part of it. As you seek to get further away from the temptations of your life, you're then able to pursue to love God more than sin. And so as you do that, as you are doing a lot of things that we've been talking about the five weeks of this sermon series, as you're seeking to put Jesus first in your life, as you're getting in Scripture, as you are getting in church, as you are getting pushing the sin out, and then next week, as we'll talk about, as we are seeking to share Jesus with others, as we're doing all these things, as we're growing in our love for Him, and that will help you sort of push the sin further and further out. And so I want to encourage you that if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, then, then do that. And maybe you have in the past, and if you have in the past, I don't encourage you, push forward. Push forward and, and put things in your life that are going to help you learn more about Him and grow in the Word and grow in praying and all these things that will help you then focus on Him more. Well, I want to close with just uh, two brief stories um, that I read recently. How many of you uh, are familiar with these things? They were in the news a lot in, uh, over the, the holidays. 
And I read an article that came out just last week. We talked about how Southwest had obviously lots of snow, and a lot of it came from their computer problems, their, their old, outdated computer system that was able to send people all over the place and, and all of that. But because of that computer system, the snow combination, that led over the holidays to an $800 million loss. A lot of money lost for that issue. Next quarter, they plan to, uh, they expect, not plan, they expect to lose money as well. And this is all because they didn't upgrade their computers in time. I talked about it a few weeks ago. They knew they had the problem. They just weren't able to fix it in time. So let's think about this. Why didn't they fix their computers in, in time? And it's not that I, I'm not an employee there, so I'm, I'm just guessing. It's not that the computers were so complicated that they couldn't do it. It's that they didn't prioritize it in their business to get it fixed before snow came. They'd known about it for years and years. So do you see where I'm going here? If you will not prioritize getting sin out of your life, you will eventually pay for it. There will be an $800 million loss of some sort in your life if you don't get it out of your life shared this before, but I want to close with this, that up until 1918, the primary cause of death with American soldiers at war was not guns, was not swords or even bombs. The primary cause of death was infection. And so that didn't change until penicillin was discovered and then broadly distributed in World War II. And before that, the soldiers would usually die from the infections that the bullet wounds brought in. So the bullet, the wound wouldn't kill them. It was the infection in the wound. And so if you will allow blatant sin, active sin to continue in your life, what you're doing is you're just like a soldier who's been injured on the battlefield with an open wound and no penicillin where it may be small in your life, and you may not notice it at first, but it's going to eventually grow deadly in your life. The great Puritan preacher said, this is John Owen, he said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So will you die a slow death, or will you take the necessary steps to get the infection out of your life? So let's go ahead and spend a moment now in prayer. And as we pray.